So this is our uh, second uh, path to becoming a CFO event, right? And thank you so much uh, to all of you for joining us. We have a very special uh, guest with us today. So Kelly Battles is uh, the CFO of uh, Quora. And before that, she's been in a number of financial leadership roles in companies like uh, Racket Computing, Host Analytics. I'm sure a bunch of you have used Host Analytics at some point. Um, you know, and uh, Iron Port Systems. She is also on the board of uh, Data Stacks. She was a member of the board of trustees at Wikimedia Foundation, and uh, I am thrilled to welcome her. And I know, uh, please welcome Kelly Battles. Come on in. Awesome. So, Kelly, thank you uh, again for joining us. And jumping right in, Let's as you right in. yeah, as you look back uh, at your uh, uh, career, I know that you have an interesting one. You studied operations research in your undergrad, which, by the way, is an interesting pattern. Mark Hawkins, the CFO of Salesforce, also studied operations research. So there's something happening there. It's like two out of two right now. But mm -hmm. you know, but then you got an MBA and you started off your career as a consultant at McKinsey, and then you did strategy, cop dev, before you finally uh, uh, you know, came into uh, finance and all the way up to CFO, right? So how did those roles kind of have an impact on uh, your ultimate journey? Did any of those roles, did you feel, uh, help you kind of decide over the course of that journey uh, and inform that decision to pursue the path to becoming a CFO? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I kind of dif divide my career into two stages. You know, keep your option open years, and then the I finally figured out what I want to be when I grow up years. Uh, my dad actually called me a, a, um, a generalist with a very expensive education in the early part of my career. Um, but that, in that first stage, I was an engineer. I worked actually at J.P. Morgan and then McKinsey in consulting, and then in a kind of an ivory tower role at, at HP in strategy and corporate development. And so none of those roles are specifically scream out like, oh, she's going to be a CFO, right? Um, but they were actually very relevant to my job today in a couple of ways. Um, one, they um, all were really uh, kind of focused on problem solving and using data to drive better decisions. And that's something that you know, CFOs today are held accountable for. Um, also, there are big lessons on leadership and communication, which I think is a big, an important part of a CFO's role. So not, not specifically um, related to being a CFO, but very helpful. And then second phase was I finally figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up, so operational finance. So I've been now the head of finance at four companies, and each of those roles really just helped kind of um, helped me master my craft and learn more. And Specifically, two, I'll carve out core in my current role, but specifically, two were very valuable in specific ways. Ironport Systems, which was an email security company that got bought by Cisco, the executive team there, many of us had never done it before, but it was a group of very smart, charismatic people who were amazing leaders. Leadership is something I think is very hard to learn from a textbook. I think it's much easier to learn by just immersing yourself in it and, and being around good leaders and learning, watching them in action. And I feel very blessed to be part of that team because there was such, good, such a good leadership culture. And then Host Analytics was very interesting. For those of you who don't know, it's, Host is still around. It's a company that sells um, FP&A software, SaaS software to, to the office of the CFO or finance uh, teams. 
it's very fun to be. It was very fun to be the CFO that sold the CFOs. It was a much broader role. The sales and marketing team joked that I was an adjunct member of the team. Um, I talked to customers every week. I helped implement the software the first time Host actually used Host um, because I wanted to be credible with customers when I talked with them. And so that that breadth really helped um, kind of build skills to be a more diverse executive. And so, really, in all honesty, like each one kind of helped along the way, even if they weren't specifically related to being a CFO. So I thought that you talked about uh, you were a VP finance there, right? But then you got that opportunity to go be a CFO in future roles. As you think about that jump and, and what separates somebody who gets to a VP finance role, but those who get the opportunity to go become a CFO, what do you think that difference is? And as people are thinking about you know their own careers, and, and how to make that shift from being a VP to a C-level executive. Yes. What are some of the lessons that you took away from your own career? Yeah, I, I feel like there are a couple of things that help with that jump. Um, one is just building out your domain experience. Like, no CFO is an expert in all the domains that, that he or she runs or uh, oversees. But I think the broader context you can get across the different domains, whether they're in finance, accounting, or other areas. Um, as a CFO, I've run facilities, IT, HR, uh, right now, uh, I run product operations at Quora. And so just rounding out and getting as much exposure across those domains is very helpful. I think secondly, just making the jump from um, kind of doing or, or managing others, you know, as a junior manager to really leading and, and learning how to, instead of, you know, doing something really well, learning how to motivate and develop others to do it well or even better than you can do it yourself. Um, and then finally... Especially important for people in finance, I think executive presence and communications. Um, one of the things that I've worked with, I think, across the, t- the finance um, individual contributors and young managers more, most consistently is on executive presence and communication skills. I think when you're in a function like finance or sales operations or uh, HR, heavy um, detailed functions where there's a lot of process and detail, and when you're young in your career, your bread and butter is about being a master of those details. But as you uh, get more senior, you need to think more like an executive and be able to really synthesize and think, what does my CEO care about? And it's very, I think I've seen in, 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 in the teams that I've managed, it can be hard to kind of widen the aperture and focus on kind of the big picture and the synthesis and like the main kind of con- contextual points versus wanting to go to your comfort zone in the details. And so I would say those three things are things that at least, you know, were transition points for me as I learned in my career. Awesome. So, uh, you know, you, you talked about the breadth of experience, right? Is that something you had to seek out in that did you ask for things that weren't specifically given to you? How does one do that, right? And so is it just raising your hand and trying to you know, get those opportunities? And how did that happen with you? Yeah, I feel like I was, I, I'm, I'm the type of person that I was kind of a lean-in person before leaning in was cool. I mean, my personality is just such that I kind of jump in and worry about it later. Like my daughter went to college last year and her, a lot of her friends were or a lot of my friends who were her friend's parents, you would ask me, are you worried? Are you worried? I'm like, no, I'm ecstatic for her. I don't want her to worry about her mom being sad. And then once she left, I'm like, oh my God, what just happened, right? I mean, it's just kind of jump in and then figure it out later. It. And I really feel like taking some of the, the riskiest career decisions that I've made when I jumped in and figured it out later and kind of maybe didn't even know what I was jumping into ended up being the best career decisions and the biggest learning opportunities. And so it's really just jump in and then 
you know, go for it and then deal with it. Got it. And on, on the communication part, right? You talked about how for executives that's especially important. For example, if you're a CFO, you're likely spending a lot of time with the board, right? And and you are partnering with the CEO to tell a story, maybe participating in fundraising. Did that just come uh, with experience or did you have to do something specifically to build your skills in, in that area? So before business school, I was petrified of speaking in front of people, absolutely petrified. And I actually got into Stanford and Harvard. And I chose Harvard because of the case study method. At the time, this is way back when, probably before a lot of you maybe were born, but um, you know, Harvard was all case study and Stanford was all lecture. And I really wanted to be in the position where in the case study method, you have to speak in front of people. You are forced to do it and you have to, um, it's trying to mimic a boardroom and you're forced to really think on your feet and speak. And I chose Harvard. One of the main reasons I chose Harvard was because of that, because I, was, I had to conquer that fear. And then over time, it's just practice, practice, practice. It's something that I don't think many people, it's not a natural act to stand up and be vulnerable in front of a large group of people publicly. I don't think many people enjoy it, especially early in your career. It's just something you got to get over. You got to learn, you got to practice, you got to do yeah. and get feedback, kind of iterate. When you get to that uh, role of CFO, different people come with different backgrounds, right? Some people start off with more of an accounting control, big four kind of a background. Others come from an investment banking strategy, corporate development, uh, that kind of a background. What has your experience been? You are a little bit more of the latter, right? So you didn't yeah, come from that traditional big four accounting, CPA kind yeah, of uh, background. And so what is your uh, you know, lessons been from that? As you've seen others, you know, maybe your peers, maybe the people... Uh, that you have mentored who have gone on uh, to those roles. You know, when people have one or the other background, is, is it advantageous or disadvantageous? Or what yeah. is your experience? First of all, the good news is, um, I think in today's day and age, investment banking, CPA, MBA, all of those backgrounds are viable and positive paths to being a CFO. I do think that um, depending on the stage of the company or the business model of the company, sometimes one of those backgrounds could be a better fit. Not always, um, but sometimes. And so the way I think about it is, is like this. You know, if you're, at a, if you're the CEO of a small company, um, you probably don't want to hire somebody straight out of investment banking because you need somebody who's operationally oriented, who's, who is going to roll up their sleeves and do, and um, who, who has more operational experience and who can wear many hats. And so that's probably not somebody coming straight out of investment banking, in all honesty. Um, if you're at a late-stage company, pre-IPO, and you have the operations nailed because you have a super-duper controller and, and head of finance and, and, and things are working well, you may want to hire somebody straight out of investment banking to help you access the capital markets because that's the big next step, right? The other thing I think a lot about is the type of company or the business model. So... If, if you're at a company that is hardcore manufacturing, lots of like very complicated accounting um, rules to, to adhere to, you, know, you, you, you probably want a CPA path to CFO. If you're at a company like Open Door or maybe Robinhood, where accessing the capital markets is a competitive advantage, you may want to hire somebody with an, an investment banking background. Um, if you're at a company with a very complicated analytical business model, you may want to hire somebody with an FP&A and strategy background. And so the good news is that all those paths are viable, and it's really more about the fit. And so as a, C, as a potential CFO, know your strengths, and then interview the company on what they really need and make sure the fit's there. Got it. And so as, uh, and this is uh, a question that came uh, 
from one of the uh, people in the audience. You were a VP of finance at Ironport. When you got that CFO role in the next role, is it common to have to move to a smaller company, earlier stage company to get that first CFO role? And how did you think about some of those choices? Because I think Ironport was fairly uh, uh, you know, established and then got acquired by uh, Cisco, great exit. Uh, and as you were uh, talking to, I think Host Analytics was the next uh, role, right? Yes, that's right. As you were think, uh, talking to them about that CFO role, what stage were they in as a company? And how did you think about those choices? Hey, maybe even go to a larger company or go to a smaller company as a CFO. How did you approach that? Yeah, I, first of all, I don't, so Ironport actually offered me the CFO role and I was, it's a personal story, but I was, pregnant and bed rest and had some health issues. So I said no. And I said, I'm committed and I'll stay. But that was one time when I did not lean in and it was the right decision for me. Um, and so I didn't have to leave the company to get the CFO role. And hopefully, I personally feel like ideally, you wouldn't have to leave the company to get that next role. Ideally, you're at a company that is growing and the opportunities are growing and the succession planning is active and the development opportunities are there. And you can kind of work your way up in a, in a good company if you want to stay there. Um, sometimes the growth is not there or there's an entrenched C CFO or maybe the CEO doesn't have faith and doesn't think that you can do the job. And I think the important part there is to have the conversation with the, your manager, the CFO, or kind of whatever the right person in your path is and be very open and honest about your um, priorities and your hopes and get their, their feedback on what the opportunities look like at your company and then work with them in an open conversation. And it may lead to what you want and it may not. And then if it doesn't, then you need to find another, uh, another opportunity. Got it. And so, uh, you know, related to the opportunities that become available, right? So data uh, shows that, I think this is for public companies, about 12% of public company CFOs are women. Right? And, uh, and if I look at the audience, this data shows that the men who aspire to be CFOs have a much better opportunity than uh, the women, right? And so it's, it's, was that your experience as you were coming up uh, the ladder? Did you feel like the opportunities you got, were, you know, that was harder to come by or were there other obstacles? And how, you know, how should maybe the women in the audience think about the challenges that may be ahead of them as they're going uh, towards that CFO role? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was not the case. I never felt that being a woman is an obstacle, in all honesty. And I think the reason why is that I've, since college, put number one on my criteria for choosing a company, culture and people. And I think I've chosen companies that were meritocracies, that um, valued diversity and, and inclusion. And maybe I got lucky, maybe I'm a good, a good company picker, but I was able, you know, I really feel, here's an example, McKinsey, at my first progress review with the, my first client after business school, um, went in with the partner who's a man and an, another associate who is uh, also a guy. We walked into a room of probably 12 to 14 old white men at this business building products company in Atlanta, Georgia. And the first thing somebody said to me is one of the senior guys asked me to go get his coffee. And the partner literally, I didn't even have time to react. The partner launched out of his chair and said, Kelly, you stay right there. I'll go get the coffee. That's a good culture, right? That's the type of people you want to be around. Like McKinsey can't control their clients, but they can control their internal culture. And so I think the number one criteria or the number one kind of key to success, in my opinion, is choosing your companies wisely, taking that very seriously and making sure it's a meritocracy and that they respect diversity and inclusion. 
got it yeah. awesome so shifting gears a little bit to uh, mentorship uh, and and your own experience with that right so over the course of your uh, career have you had did you seek out mentors and how have they been helpful uh, to your own uh, you know path to becoming a CFO yes so that's an interesting question so i definitely have um, invested time in seeking out mentors but it's evolved over time in my career and so early on you know when you're first learning and first kind of developing in your career you know the the basic blocking and tackling is just the learnings are the the the, the low hanging fruit are just so voluminous that the best mentors I had were my managers because they were watching me day in and day out, and we had such a close relationship that they would just give me the best advice on how to grow and learn. And so the lesson there is just pick good cultures and teams again and managers. Um, then I feel like as I started specializing and, and focusing on operational finance, when I joined Ironport, I literally barely knew the difference between AP and AR. I mean, I was really, it was, you know, ba operational finance was new to me. I had been in consulting and banking and corporate development. One day my boss, Scott Weiss, who's an amazing leader, um, he was the CEO, he said to me, he said, how are you doing, Kelly? And I'm like, here's how I'm doing, Scott. I feel like I am holding on to the back of a rocket ship by the, the hair, you know, like by my, by fingernails, and the exhaust fumes are blowing my face, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to fall off sometime soon. And he's like, oh, my gosh. And so during that conversation, or maybe some, another time, he said, you know, you need your CFO club. He was a new CEO. He belonged to YPO, so we had a lot of a CEO support group who, who they, you know, share notes. It's like, you need your CFO support group. So he and the board helped me find a couple of very experienced CFOs, and they just, they said, use us to bounce things off of. So the first time I had to do a commission plan or set commission quota plan, uh, quota schemes for the sales team, I would email them or take them out to lunch and uh, individually and just learn. And so that was amazing because it was very specific. It helped me kind of not recreate the wheel. And I had the support of the board and the CEO to help these mentors, you know, be um, in it, right? Not. And so that was very helpful to learn um, kind of some basic specifics about building a finance team at a high growth company. And then over time, as you kind of learn your craft, my mentorship now really comes from prior peers who I've worked with in the past. They have empathy, they're execs as well, but they've worked very well. We've we have worked with them and they know me very well. And, um, and, and just bouncing ideas in a natural, authentic friendship, just being able to share ideas and thoughts and issues has been very helpful. Um, so it's evolved over time. One anecdote I'll tell you is I once went to, I've never, I rarely go to these things, but I went to a Watermark for Women conference. Who's heard of Watermark for Women? It's an amazing conference. I, I, I was invited once and went um, a couple of years ago, and I, one of the best panels was Karish with Swisher was interviewing Condoleezza Rice and Madeleine Albright. So Madeleine Albright was the first female Secretary of State under Clinton. Condoleezza Rice was the, the first African-American female Secretary of State under w, George W. Bush. And so they, you know, and this was right after Trump won, so it was, it was very fun, funny, this, this discussion. Because one's a Democrat, one's a Republican. But Condoleezza Rice said something about mentorship that I'll never forget. Um, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, by the way. I love Condoleezza Rice. She's from Birmingham also. Um, she said to Kara, she said, you know, I am an African-American woman who grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, who is a concert pianist, who is a Russian studies major, who wanted to go into politics. 
If I wanted to find a mentor who's just like me, I would have never had a mentor. <laughs> and it's an important lesson. Like most, Some of my best mentors have been men who are not in finance, right? And so if you're looking for mentors, I would say, don't just go up to somebody and say, will you be my mentor? You need to figure out what you need help in and then be very specific about who can help you and then target them and be very efficient. And then hopefully you'll build an efficient, I mean, a, sorry, a, well, efficient for them, but an authentic relationship over time that you can come back to. But it's got to start with efficiency and specifics. Yep. And it doesn't need to be somebody who looks and acts just like you. And, and I assume, uh, you know, it, it's also about asking your CEO, your, you know, the other people on the team that you're on, for help with that. Yes, and asking for feedback also, like early on, asking for feedback, being open for it, open to it, and then learning who gives you the good feedback and building the relationship with them. Got it. And I would imagine you are now in a position where you are mentoring others, right, who are coming up behind you. And you know, when you look at all the people uh, you know, who are on that path and people who maybe some of them succeed and, and get to their goals and some of them uh, you know, not at the same uh, level of success, what are some patterns that you see among the more successful, you know, I guess success is a loaded word, you could define yeah. it in, in many different ways, but what are some patterns you see in the people who do end up in, the, in that role versus the ones who haven't? So, first of all, coachability and, like, growth mindset. Like, are people open to, like, getting the feedback that we were just talking about, and will they act on it and learn from it? That's number one. Two, I really think to be a leader, you just need to care about people. And so, you know being a people person, being authentic, being empathetic, being able to get into the hearts and minds of, of people and understanding what motivates them and then trying to really work with them to, to build a successful career and really authentically caring about that, I think is, is important. Um, and then finally, bias towards action. I've seen a lot of smart people who can't get stuff done and typically you know, at the end of the day, people stop wanting to work with them, right? And so bias towards action and getting things done, being decisive, uh, I think that's probably the third thing I'd, I'd bring up. Awesome. And, and speaking of the leadership part that you just brought up, right? You know, was that something that just came naturally to you? I think it's, it's said that uh, management can be taught, but leadership can't. I'm not sure if I agree with that, but what was your own experience with that? You talked about how public speaking was a challenge and then you had to work at it, put yourself outside your zone of comfort mm -hmm. and force yourself to get better at it. But you think about, and, and a lot of the time when you're a CFO, you, so much of the job is about mentoring people, building a team, keeping them uh, motivated and happy and passionate and leadership is such a big part of that, right? Mm -hmm. And so is that something that came naturally to you or did you have to work at it and what did you do and what was your experience there? Um, I think that... The people elements come naturally to me. I'm just a, I'm an extrovert. I care passionately about people and culture, and so that is is helpful. Um, I again come back to choose your teams, your companies, your your managers well. I feel like I was over time exposed to such good managers and good leaders that you know before I needed to be one, I had seen such good leadership and management in action that the osmosis helped. I'm, I think, again, I come back to, I think both are hard to learn from a textbook and that seeing people in action and doing, seeing people do things well and then practicing and seeing what works for you was the best, you know, for me, that was the best way. So part of it just came naturally and part of it was just iterating as I learned and watched other great leaders and managers in action. Got it. And this is a plug for smaller companies. I feel like, you know, going to a smaller company 
you get to see, in my opinion, especially if you choose well, more cross-functional leadership and action. And I, I really feel like it's a much more intense learning experience. And it, if it's a good company, then that's a very good thing. Right? Right. And I think this goes back to your earlier point of pick the right team. And, and culture. Do the, do the diligence on the team and culture before you, before you join. Absolutely. Awesome. So uh, another question that came from the audience was around, you're on the board now. Right and yep. uh, how, you know, how did that opportunity come about? How did you, you know, was that something you pursued or was that something that got offered to you? And has that made you a better CFO? Right? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of research on this. Most board seats are obtained through networking, and that's one of the reasons women are at a disadvantage with board seats right now is because they're not in a lot of these networks where these things are chosen, or that, that kind of lead to these these decisions being made. And so every single board seat that I've been on has been through. A network or a relationship. Um, it has not a single one has just been random, right? Or kind of, or kind There's of. There's no LinkedIn message saying, "Do you want to be on my board?" No, no, no. I mean, I get those, but those are not the ones that I've, I've okay. pursued. Um, and so, yeah. And and does it make you a better CFO? I absolutely. So, if you're you, the average tenure of a CFO, the last time I saw the research was maybe three to four years at any one company. And so, basically, every three to four years, I've actually my average tenure has been between three and six years. And so, every three to six years, you're you're intensely involved in one company, and you're learning and acting in that one company. And if you can take one or two board seats along at the same time, you're doubling or tripling your ability to learn, get context. You're also doing something good for this company. Hopefully, if you're good, you're helping them. And, and hopefully, you have some you know, economic um, incentives as well. But from a learning point of view, it, just, it, by, it, it multiplies your ability to learn and get context of what's happening out in the business world, what happens in other companies. And you can bring that all to bear to your current job. And so it's been incredibly valuable for me. Got it. And when you think about timing, right? So in, in the arc of a career, uh, would you suggest that it does, you know, doesn't make sense to pursue it early in the career, but wait for some of those opportunities to start coming for you? When does somebody decide, hey, is it a good idea, for example, for somebody at the early stage of their career to just go take an opportunity to be on a nonprofit board, just volunteer, help? And because that also gives you perspective. Would you say that something I'd like that is I'd say the good? earlier you can do it, the better. And, and I've been on several non-profit boards, including Wikipedia, the Wikimedia Foundation, um, but others as well. And I feel like every start where you can and then build based on that. And in the meantime, in the nonprofit boards, I think there's a lot of very relevant governance and, and, and just knowledge you can um, learn in a not-for-profit board that you can bring to bear in a for-profit environment. And so I would say start where you can and then just build over time. And the earlier you can do it, the better. I mean, it's one that's fun. It's great learning. And you're helping another company or entity. And so why not? I think it's harder to do it when you're more junior because if you haven't been an executive and you haven't, you know, the first one's the hardest in these things, right? And so, but not-for-profits, especially if you're involved in the organization, whether it's a church or a school or, you know, whatever, I mean, that's a great place to start. Got it. And speaking of learning, right, so I have always found it super helpful to, you know, spend time with people who are ahead of the journey I'm on by a few years. And my single most uh, you know, common question to them is, tell me about the mistakes that you made so that I can avoid those and go make brand new mistakes of my own. Right? <laughs> that's, so, that's a good question to ask And people. so uh, as you think back and as you mentor people and as mm -hmm. uh, you look back at your own career, what if some of those 
you know, screw up some mistakes, Ben, <coughs> that, that you have really learned from that you try to guide, uh, you know, people on that path uh, away from? Yes, yeah, so many mistakes. Okay, so if I think about just general mistakes, and then I'll come to finance specifically, but general mistakes that I've seen um, people make, and I, I'm going to talk about some that I'm okay on and some that I've made, but if, if I had to pick three of the biggest mistakes I see young managers or young people in their career make, one, it is not delegating enough. It's going into that comfort zone of I can do this better, I can do it faster. I'm just going to not delegate. I'm going to do it. That is just—it's a—it's a rookie error. I never—I've not really experienced that because I was in so many environments that there was so much going on, and I felt maybe overwhelmed that I was like, "Please do it. I need the help." You know. Um, the second is fearing vulnerability, like fearing showing vulnerability or weak, as a weakness to your employees. That's another one I did not as uh, I haven't struggled as much um, with. I think my, my mother died when I was 19 or when I was 17, and she was 39. And I had spent a lot of time talking about that with people and explaining and going through it. And so I think that taught me to just be open and not fear showing weakness or, or sadness or vulnerability. But one, the third one, I've experienced in spades, and that was feeling like you have to know all the answers. And this is a, I see this all the time. And I definitely, in my first progress review at McKinsey, the partner, John Durrett, who's still a dear friend, um, I was on a strategy study at McKinsey for Habitat for Humanity. The founder, who's now passed away, Millard Fullard, was the main audience, along with his execs. And we did a program review of all those programs. And he, like most founders, strong founders, is, was brilliant, but also very stubborn. So we were going through some of these programs that made absolutely no sense, and he just went after me. And we just had this whole, and this is my first engagement manager job at McKinsey, my first progress review. And the partner was there, and my, we had a small team, they were there, but it was just me and Miller going after it. And at the end, going at it, at the end, John pulls me aside, and he's like, you know, he's nice, and he gave me some compliments and said, here's what you did well. He's like, Kelly, but one thing you just need to learn is like, you need to stop listen and chill in environments like that. You don't have to have all the answers. You can pull other people in. You can say, I don't know this. You can come back later, but you need to chill out, right? And, and it was such a visceral lesson because it was, you know, people say feedback is like sushi. It's best served fresh. This is right after the, you know, the, the, the moment of, of pain. And like, he just let me have it in a nice, respectful way. But it just really, it was, it was almost like it was a liberating experience. Like, oh, okay, I don't have to have all the answers, right? It's okay to not. So that was a very uh, a, a good learning for me. If you think about specific to finance, I think one of the biggest errors that I see and that I've definitely made is, you know, we're the keepers of the budget. We are the stewards, like the, the example stewards of the company. And I, I feel like there's a tendency sometimes to take that too far and to underinvest in the finance infrastructure um, to benefit the rest of the company. And I've definitely, at Ironport, this happened in my first year where I would go to Scott and say, hey, you know, I'm overwhelmed. We have too much going on. I really need this. And he's like, oh, can you make it last for another year? Can you, or can you make it, you know, try to make it last, try to make it last. And I was a good soldier and said, yes, I will do that. And at the end of the day, we got behind the eight ball. And everything was fine. We caught up. And, 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 but it, it really came out of the height of me and my team. And so that's something I think a lot about with my team at Cora and I've, in the past around, like, this balance of being, about being the frugal steward but also investing to make sure that finance is not a blocker to growth. <coughs> it's very bad if finance is slowing down growth, right? And so just trying to keep that balance. I made that mistake at Ironport. We got behind the eight ball. I will never do that again. So 
let's talk about the role of finance a little bit, right? So, in in there's a term for it, back office, right? So, in a company, yeah, how do you term. exactly? Mm-hmm. So, how do you make sure that finance is seen as that strategic function that it is in companies? And what has your experience been in enabling that? Yeah. So, I feel like. Um, you know, finance wants to be not viewed as the theme counter in the back office, right? We want to be viewed as the strategic business partner who has a, a serious seat at the table. And I think that the for me in my career, the main entree to that has been data and analytics. You know, I have this kind of saying, let the data set you free. Um, you know, all companies, no matter how great, go through tough times. And it's how you get through those tough times that defines you as like a company, an executive, a team. I think one of the ways to get around those hard times is to use data and analytics to, to frame the problem and to diffuse emotions or politics or other things that can get in the way. And finance has a key role in that as the keepers of a lot of the data. And so, you know, what I always try to do is, is be very diligent around um, making sure that conversations are grounded in data and that all decisions, all material decisions at least, have a strong, some sort of analytical rigor and business case behind it and making sure that finance is bringing to bear that discipline and enforcing that discipline in the company so that we have a strong decision-making framework for the executive team. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of the entry. And then you, know, you, you build your credibility through that and your, 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 um, your partnership with the other execs. You know, one of the things that I think a lot about is, you know, I think of these jobs or or, our roles in dimensions, right? And one of the dimensions is frugality versus investing for growth we talked about. Another one is having the heart. I say to my team, I want the heart of a customer servant and the mind of a police officer in my team, right? You know, and so I feel like finding that right balance with your stakeholders around being a customer servant, helping them move faster, but within bounds, because we also are in charge of a lot of compliance and rules, and you know we want to keep people out of jail. And so finding that right balance where you're not always saying no, like I want to say yes, we want to say yes, but sometimes we can't. And then when you can't say yes, say no with a big smile on your face, right? And try to be viewed as a helpful business partner, not the compliance, you know, the compliance jerk. Right? Heart of a customer servant, mind of a police officer. I'm going to steal that. No, don't right. steal that. So, <laughs> so one, one last question before we jump into uh, audience questions. Uh, you know, how has the role of finance changed over the course of your career? The way the job is done, and I think more importantly, as people are thinking about the next five or ten years, and and the folks who are on that path for uh, a role, how do you think it might change given what you're seeing now and what skills? You know, uh, is there a skill gap that you're seeing currently that may, may have to be filled? Okay. Yeah, so I started working over 30 years ago. When I was in banking at J.P. Morgan, women could not wear pantsuits to work. And we had to wear hose with our skirts. Like, the role of, like, just professionalism has come a long way. And I think that the role of finance has along with it as well. Um, and I think two main drivers have helped finance. I think generally finance's role has been elevated. So mm-hmm. first, that's kind of my my conclusion. And I think two big factors or drivers helped us. One was Sarbanes-Oxley, which is, you know, a thorn in a lot of people's side. But basically, Sarbanes-Oxley put, I think, made the executive suite understand that getting your financial house in order is very important because if you don't, your stock price is going to pay and therefore your company is going to pay. And so that kind of helped the CPA, CFO have a more important role. And then the crash of 2008, I think, 
was the opposite. It helped, you know, for a very different set of reasons and, and helped in a different way. But, you know, I think companies realize or execs realize that if you have a good finance team, best case is you can use their, their strengths to avoid the pitfalls of something like the 08 downturn. But even without that, you know, it help, finance can help get through those obstacles or recover from those obstacles um, more quickly. And I think that helped elevate the data analytics FP&A side of finance. And so I think today, finance is more rarely seen as the bean counter back office and, and more frequently seen as the business partner, the strategic business partner that we want to we be. Um, looking forward, I think that you know, that's, those things are going to continue. And with the advent of big data and even more complex analytics around, and more, just a more complex world, um, you know, with internationalization and global or globalization, um, the, 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 the data and the analytics are more complex. And I think the CFOs in the office of the CFO of finance teams are going to just have to keep staying on top of that. And so things like making sure that you automate, you, you have a single source of truth on your data, you have good infrastructure around data and analytics, and that you can handle this complexity and still continue to bring to bear the kind of the information, not just the data, to the table, I think will become more and more important. So from a skills point of view, like my daughter, she's a business major with a computer science minor, but she's learning things like Tableau and like, right. you know, trying to get into BI and analytics to make sure that, you know, that you know this that she can scale with this stuff, and I think that's very smart. I think it's smart for all of us to stay on top of. Got it. Awesome. So I'm done with my questions. I'm going to. I'm sure that. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you, Kelly, for the insights. Uh, my name is Avnish, and I'm a founder of an education technology startup. Uh, pretty small. I'll, uh, I have multiple questions. Maybe I'll start with two first. Uh, first question is: I mean, for a startup like ours, we have like eight people hitting uh, like half a million ARR. When is the right time to really get a CFO on board? I mean, things are starting to kind of look a little bit uh, hard and messy. I mean, I've been doing it for so far myself. So, so that's my first question. Second question I have is, I mean, there's a lot of talk about hiring uh, and kind of uh, uh, scrutinizing for trust and integrity. So how do you do that in your team? I mean, our experience to build our first like eight people team has been not really good in building out of the network team. So uh, how do you scrutinize or how do you kind of you know, uh, filter for trust and integrity? Yeah, so the first part of the question is um, when's the right time to hire a CFO? And I feel like the right time to hire a CFO is when you've found product market fit. And product market fit means different things in different companies, but in, for, for a software company, to me, it means that if you hire a salesperson, it's a lather, rinse, repeat process where you know exactly what that salesperson is going to book in quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, quarter four, year two, year three. It's just more of a machine, and so you're scaling. I think before that, you shouldn't hire a CFO. There's so many temp CFOs out there or consulting firms like Countsy that, that can do a lot of the bookkeeping for you so that you can just focus on the big picture in finance as a founder or CEO until you know your, the complexity and the scaling really starts to happen. And then um, the second question was about hiring for trust and integrity. So... Or, I, this is, it's hard. And so I feel like this is an area like cultural fit values is very, something I focus a lot on. And I tend to, um, when, when I'm hiring for a role, I tend to make sure that everyone on the team has clear roles. There's somebody that tests, tests for culture, but then every single person tests for culture. Like there's somebody who primarily tests for culture and then, but every single person has some sort of question that tests for culture. And typically those questions are more behavioral 
in focus. So things like tell us, tell me about um, a development need that you have and how you're working on it, and a development need you have that you're not working on and why, or what's a material mistake you've made in the past and how did you deal with it? And you're testing for things that are softer around: do they own their mistakes? Do they learn from their mistakes? Are they self-aware? Are they honest about their themselves? And so I feel like those behavioral questions are really key. And I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley are so focused on technical skills that they just forget about that. And then they make mistakes because values and fit, in, in, in my belief, values and fit are more important than technical skills because you learn technical skills, but you can't change your values. So, Interested to hear as you've gone from VP finance and various CFO roles, how the either exits or potential exits or your you know, visibility to potential exits has has factored into that and whether you've been um, you know looking you had one company that at least one company that was acquired um, when you were there other ones that maybe we're going to go public or you know maybe you were going to stay for that maybe you weren't going to stay that long you didn't see that you didn't see that it being enough potential in the near term and, and how you how that has kind of factored into your career as you've gone through? Yeah, it hasn't factored at all in my choice of company. Like when I look at companies, I look at four things and I look in a lot of detail, but it's in this priority order. First team, culture and values and boss because the bosses, you know, bosses are 80% of your job satisfaction according to lots of different studies. And so really doing your due diligence on your boss, especially if your boss is a CEO because they set the tone, not just for your job, but for the whole company. That's job number one. And you can do so much now, YouTube, Quora, um, you know, check out their Facebook and Instagram and see if they're, they're private or public. Like, you can learn so much about a person by just getting on the Internet now. It's amazing. Uh, Glassdoor is a great source, right? Anyway, so culture team, um, manager, et cetera, that's number one. Number two for me is market opportunity. You want to be in a big, growing market. Number three is product market fit, and number four is the role. And for me, over time, the role is, you know, has, the role's never been that important because I feel like if you're in a good, uh, in a good place, You'll, the role will figure it. You'll figure it out. I've never really thought, oh, is this going to be buy, bought or acquired? I've felt I've focused more on, do I think this can be a big standalone company, right? And then if you know, all three of my prior companies have been bought now. Um, Quora, you know, I don't think our fan will ever sold sell that company. We are going to go public, right? Or get, you know, or direct listing. That's another interesting topic. Um, but and so, so to me, that's that was not a criteria at all. It's more: is it going to be a big standalone company? Is this a great opportunity? And then we'll see what happens. And you do what's right for the shareholder at the end of the day. Right. Hey, Kelly, um, Brent Blasnick. I'm with Talia. You mentioned as far as um, getting board seats, and it really was networking that led you to be able to get those board seats. Can you talk a little more about what type of networking or what type of opportunities or activities you got involved in? Because that's something where it's really hard to sort of carve out time from your day-to-day work life to really yeah. spend a lot of time on networking. Yeah, it's just serendipity. So, for instance, Wikipedia for me. So I was on the board of my kid's school and met Guy Kawasaki, who happened to have a kid at my school and was on the board. And we got to be really good friends. And so when Wikipedia was looking for a, a, an audit committee chair, they went through this whole search process and they found a lot of people that had no operational experience. And they just decided this is not, this is not gonna work for what we need. And guys like, well, I know somebody. And he literally just called me one night. I was watching TV with my husband and on the you know, Xfinity screen, Guy Kawasaki is calling. So I was like, okay, hi, Guy. And he's like, hey, what do you think about joining the board of Wikipedia? I mean, that's literally what happened. I mean, I had to go through the interview process, but that's how it happened. Um, 
And then for Datastax, I actually interviewed the day I got my Quora offer, I interviewed with Datastax for their CFO role. And I, I hit it off with the CEO. He's a lovely person. Um, we have a lot of things in common. We spent, we were supposed to meet for an hour. We ended up talking for, um, I think, two hours. Um, and, but my heart was with Quora already. And so when they were looking for a, a board member, I came up through, I think I came up through a, ser- you know, a search firm, but you know, they also already knew me. And it turned out since I had said no to pursuing that CFO job, I had gotten to know the GC because our daughters play basketball together. And so it was just totally serendipitous. I'm not a good networker, but I'm a people person and I I lay deep roots with people that I get to know. And so it's really just been more like making relationships, making friends, and then just these things fall into place. I feel like if I were a more active networker, you know, it'd be a lot easier. Um, But I think at the end of the day, it's just about building authentic relationships with people over time and then just seeing where it leads. I don't know. I don't know if that really answered your question, but hi Kelly, uh, Anita Ayer, I'm the VP of Finance at Metro Mile. Um, I have a question on fundraising. You very briefly touched on it. Would love to kind of hear about like your process and learnings as a private company and like fundraising processes. What's been really successful? Um, Sometimes it's kind of hard to control how like VCs and other folks are viewing your company. You're trying to tell the best story you can. Your CEO is out there kind of fundraising and as finance, like you're trying to support it in every way possible through the due diligence process or kind of the overall fundraising pitch. Just curious as a CFO, like how you've kind of helped drive that process or control that process or or the outcomes of that. Yeah, I mean, it's hand in hand with the CEO. I mean, the CEO really owns the process, right? Especially early on, you know, like our founder, our CEO is the founder and he's, he's, you know, very invested in the company. Um, and so I kind of feel like you're, you're the right hand person to the CEO in helping. I mean, it's like a sales funnel process, right? You're building a, a you, you start with, you know, what's your message, your plan, obviously very instrumental in building the plan. For me, one of the hardest things to do is to figure out what probability case you show investors, right? So like, you know, I think early on, you kind of show your P50, maybe, you know, 40 P40 case, meaning you're 40 to 50% likely to meet or beat the plan. Because you know that, you know, it's such a, it's such a wild card when you're early on, early on, you don't have a lot of history, you don't have a lot of data. Um, and, and you also kind of know that most of the VCs are going to haircut you a, a material amount anyway. And so figuring that out, and then, you know, keeping the two models straight, oh, here's our cash plan. And you and then later on, I think late stage investors, they want to see the meet and beat plan, right? But then like, how conservative are you? Is it your P80? Is it your P90? And getting that plan right where you're showing faith and hope in the company, but you're also, you know, not going to create an issue down the path if you, you sell this, you know, equity um, based on the plan that's too aggressive. That's where I think the CFO has a lot of early value in trying to sort that out. But you build your pitch, you build your plan, you build your pipeline, right? Who are the VCs? And so building relationships with VCs over time can be very helpful. Is that something you've done as a CEO? Absolutely. I mean, after four companies, like I've gotten to know a lot of VCs, right? And at HP, I worked in corporate venture capital as well. And part of what we did was we networked with some of the VC community. The, the, the VCs don't really love corporate VCs, so that was interesting. But um, but yeah, just creating that that Rolodex and those relationships. So when it, it does come time to fundraise at a new company, you have you can help build that list, and then it's working through the list, right? It's you know, just doing the sandhill shuffle, and then just working through, 
the rounds of like, okay, these people are really interested. These people are out. And then do very detailed due diligence. I feel like once you get into detailed due diligence, that's where finance and legal really take over and add that, you know, some significant value. My goal there is to keep my CFO out of it and to keep as many execs out of it as possible so that we're using their time really efficiently. And finance and legal, are, which reports to me at Cora, are just handling all the, the day-to-day stuff. And then when there's a due diligence meeting, bringing to bear the experts that need to be there and showing well, making sure the execs know, hey, they're judging not just your answers, but how we work as a team, right? You know, how, how we show as a team and as individuals. Um, and then just kind of working through the negotiations and the, and the, and the documents process is just like project managing that. Does that answer you? Yeah. Yeah, one more question. All right. <coughs> uh, hi, Kelly. Um, I'm Robin Sharma. I work at Airbase in Finance and Accounting. So my question is, as a CFO, what do you keep, I guess, what do you keep doing to keep, you said keep, what do you do to challenge yourself to this day? Well, taking board seats. You're talking about professionally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like, well, first of all, you know, I've been at four companies now as the finance leader. So Ironport was an appliance company with early SaaS subscriptions. We were one of the early SaaS subscription providers or sellers. Then Host Analytics was a SaaS company, all application, no hardware. And then Bracket was infrastructure as a service and Cora is a consumer internet company. And so one of the things I've found is finance skills in some ways are fairly fungible across spaces. And so to keep it interesting, I've gone to different business models and different domains, right? And so that's part of keeping it, it interesting. Like, Quora is unlike any other company I've ever worked at, and I love it, and I'm learning so much because of that. So that's one way. Um, a second way is just taking these board seats. Like, it's really fun to learn about other companies and their issues and opportunities, and then figure out how do you apply that to your current job or future jobs. So those are two ways. Excellent. So Kelly, I'm sure uh, folks would love to spend some one-on-one time with you. Thank you so much for joining us today, and it was great to have you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks so much. Thank you. <clears throat>